Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Amber O'Hearn. Amber was my guest for episode 37, where we talked about her journey and experience on eating an all-meat diet. Amber is a data scientist by profession, but she has been researching and experimenting with a ketogenic and evolution-based diets since 1997. She has eaten almost nothing else except meat since 2009, and she's discovered a lot more juicy information for us today. Amber, thanks so much for coming on to the show again. Thanks for having me. I really had a great time last time, and it's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, well, I mean, if I just look at the comments and the amount of views that you've had on YouTube alone, just for that interview, a lot of people loved the information you shared last time. And as I touched on in your introduction there, you found out even more information and you're giving more lectures. So I'm really excited to try find out the new things you've discovered so you can share that with people. Thank you. So to begin with, um, I believe today we're going to be mainly looking at ketosis, brain health, and micronutrients. So if you could just explain why ketosis is so unique to humans versus other animals. Well, this is something that I only realized recently. It had always bothered me that when Many, in many of the papers that I read about ketosis, especially the early ones, but I would say it still goes on to this day, in the introduction where the authors are want to say, you know, what, what is ketosis, what is a ketogenic diet, they will often use the phrase uh, starvation or mimic starvation, and they talk about ketosis as if its primary function is this adaptation that animals and humans included evolved in order to cope with times when food wasn't there. Well, it's absolutely true that in every other animal that we've studied, if they are able to produce a ketogenic state at all, it's only in the case where their caloric needs are not being met or their protein needs are not being met or both. But humans are an exception to this. In fact, as you know, if you're following a ketogenic diet, you can maintain your weight. You don't have to be in a caloric deficit or a protein deficit to stay ketogenic. And in fact, unlike any other animal that we know of, you can, you can probably meet maybe twice your protein needs and still be in ketosis as long as your carbohydrates are low. And by ketosis, I mean like a, a minimal kind of nutritional ketosis level, as Finney might say, is about 0.5 millimoles. Now, if you look at other animals, even, even when you do get them into ketosis, uh, they, they don't even get to the depth that we can get. So it's not just a matter of quantity, it's a matter of quality. And so that, um, that I think sets us apart in a really important way and brings up all kinds of questions about the role of ketosis in humans, in human evolution, and and in the human lifespan. Mm. So yeah, I mean, just to hear that it is interesting, and it's a, it's a quite a good point that you brought up that ketosis may be seen as a starvation mode, but in humans, actually, people can thrive in it, and they're not starving themselves, and they're getting these ketone bodies. So. 
this gets me thinking too, isn't it also when we're a baby that we're in a state of ketosis when we're born or, um, you know, even in our childhood? Could you just take us through that sort of journey? Yes, absolutely. So many mammals have what's called the ketosis of suckling, which means that while they're just uh, completely unweaned and thriving on their mother's milk, they're in a state of ketosis. Now, this obviously is not a state of starvation. In fact, it's a state of growth. Um, there's also evidence that feet that fetuses are using ketones, the placenta is full of ketones. And so it's even if there are other sources of energy, the ketones are always there during that, that time of brain growth. Now in other animals, as soon as they're weaned, they stop being in ketosis. Um, and of course in humans, if you wean them onto a high carb diet, that's going to also be the case. But as we know from, for example, the big literature that we have for for childhood epilepsy, children are, go readily into ketosis if you do put them on a low-carb diet. Furthermore, even children who are weaned onto a high-carb diet go into ketosis much more quickly than an adult does. And an adult already, maybe it takes a couple of days of fasting, for example, or maybe four days of carbohydrate restriction, but uh, an infant will go into ketosis easily within a day. And so they, and moreover, they will use those ketones in the brain much more readily than an adult will. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear that kids have a different transition time than adults. So as you're saying, then that they are more designed to to switch to that fuel source um, compared to maybe adults because we've, I don't know if it's a time thing because we're older and we've done so much more to our metabolism over the years or is it just because their their energy needs are different at that, at that age too? Um, it brings up some interesting questions there. Basically, it, until uh, maturity, adulthood, it's a function, an inverse function of age. But then... Um, we don't see any um, loss of ability. Once you've reached adulthood, it, it kind of stays stable. And one of the more persuasive arguments that I've heard about it is um, that it's that it has to do with the relative size and energy needs of the brain. So you might have heard the figure that in an adult, your brain uses about 20% of all the energy, even at rest, even if you're kind of vegging out in front of the TV, you don't have to be doing difficult <laughs> cognitive work. Um, but think about the relative size of the brain in an infant. It's like, I don't know, maybe if you imagine a baby, maybe their head takes up a third of the, of the uh, length of the body. And so the relative energy needs are, are really quite acute. And so Many have argued, and I draw heavily from Stephen Cunane, who is a pioneer in this study, um, that the the energy needs of the brain are really what's driving the the demand for ket for ketones, because ketones can pass through the blood-brain barrier just like glucose can, but unlike most fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So, I'm just wondering then, um, when looking at 
evolutionary diets, I guess in the current age, we've got to look more at tribes, who, groups of people who still live a tribal life. Do you think then those children have access to more ketones due to the way that they eat from an ev- um, currently versus may, maybe compared to a child in the Western world who's eating more processed foods or carbohydrate-dense foods? Um, I, I'm just wondering if there's a difference there. That really depends. And there's, I think, a vital distinction to be made. Um, hunter-gatherer societies can, are, can be very informative in terms of showing us the kinds, the v- great variety of diets that a human being can thrive on. But they're not very representative of our evolutionary environment. Our evolutionary environment, one of the main differences was that we had access to megafauna. That means animals that were way, way, way bigger than the ones that we can hunt now. And it turns out that the larger an animal is, the more proportion of their body is fat. The less they need to rely on speed to get away from their enemies and the more they can turn and face their enemies, for example. And they need that fat also as an energy source, just like we do. So in the time that we were developing into humans and that we were developing the brains that we had, first of all, there were different kinds of animals than we can hunt now. I I consider all of the hunter-gatherer societies that we've encountered in the post-agriculture and post-historical writing age as a variety of different solutions to the crisis, the energy crisis that we faced due to the extinction of the megafauna. Another important difference was that we didn't have, for most of the time that we were developing our brains, we didn't have access to fire. Fire and cooking, the widespread use of fire, is very important in modern hunter-gatherer societies where they might be using a higher-carb diet, but they rely on the ability of fire to break down, for example, a tuber that is mostly fiber into some available starch to get energy. And so the the energy that the brain needs, as we already touched on, was so critical that we we needed to have a source of energy all the time. And if you look at the environment that we evolved in, carbohydrates just weren't a very consistently available source. So we went through ice ages, we we didn't have a lot of fruit access except maybe seasonally, so we couldn't get a lot of sugar that way, and we didn't have the um, kind of control over grain that we have now, so we didn't have the ability to use that. Tubers were also inconsistently available, and they it, the access to the starch was much more limited without the fiber. And so the the only really plausible energy source that we had consistently over that time was fat directly. And, the, and you know, we didn't have the ability to get, like, oil out of plants the way that we do now. The only plausible source that I know of is animal fat. And when you put that together with the micronutrients that a brain needs to survive that are 
are found most consistently also and sometimes solely in animal-based foods. The picture that emerges is that our ability to grow the brains that we've had completely relied on the ability to consistently on a basically not necessarily every single day but on a on a day-to-day kind of basis year after year generation after generation okay so um what i'm hearing here uh just as a summary from i think what we've talked about so far is that the brain from an evolution perspective has has needed these ketone bodies to actually be able to grow um compared to uh, a quick fuel source from carbohydrates it sounds just because of our food sources um so do you think then i'm just trying to think of what people are going to be listening now and thinking what so what is the ideal diet for their kids to help with brain growth at the moment then um so this is sort of going to take some of the theory of how the evolution says this is how our brains grew but then i'm sure parents here are going to be thinking so so what does amber think then is ideal for brains for for kids' brains to grow properly? That's a great question. So these days, and the hunter-gatherers speak to this, we have the ability to meet our energy needs with carbohydrates if we want to, if it's cheaper or if we have some idea that that's what we want to do. However, the micronutrient needs still need to be met. And these, these... Micronutrient needs are really important because not only are they, many of them, critical for the proper development of the brain, not only are they critical in a kind of um, long-term sense, but they're critical in an acute sense. So if you don't get enough of certain nutrients during a developmental stage, there are certain cases, especially in the first year of life, where the detriment to your growth is going to not be fully reversible even if you get those needs met later. So there are, I would say, four or five different classes of, uh, well, one way to break it down, of nutrients that you need. One of them is minerals. Minerals that we know are absolutely critical for proper brain development include iron, iodine, selenium, and zinc. And really the only way to get those needs properly met is through meat. It's true that you can get iron from, for example, uh, spinach is a really high source of iron. But the other problem with spinach is, and and this is thematic, (laughs) the problem with spinach is it has anti-nutrients in it. It has um, oxalates in it, is what in spinach in particular, that actually bind to the iron and make it hard to absorb. And so you can you can do there are certain strategies you can take like you can increase your vitamin C intake and that will increase the absorbability of the of the plant form of iron non-heme iron but if you want to make sure that your iron needs are met you the best source is meat and the same is true for zinc the same is true for iodine um, there have been studies so this isn't just theoretical but there have been studies where um, infants have been compared with actually fortified cereal so it's not like it wouldn't even be ethical to sit to say well let's give infants cereal without fortification and compare it to meat so they compared fortified cereal with meat and what they found was increased 
uh, brain growth determined by the size of the head. And we know that that has a correlation with better outcomes in terms of intelligence. And um, they also found that zinc values were met better even um, even though there was no addition of zinc to the meat. So um, adding meat as a first food, even if it's not the only food, I think can only help if you want to make sure that you're um, that you're providing enough. So that's minerals. Another um, important kind of nutrient that we need for brain growth are vitamins. Vitamins are, by definition, a vitamin just means something that we can't, um, we have to get from the diet and that we need it as typically a coenzyme in some kind of metabolic process. So an example of vitamins that you need critically for brain growth are vitamin D and vitamin A and vitamin B12. Vitamin B12, obviously, you need to get from meat. I don't know. I think there might now be, if you're a vegetarian, you might be able to get B12 based on some kind of um, yeast product. Uh, but, of course, that wouldn't have been the case in the evolutionary environment. Vitamin A is an interesting one that uh, relies, if you don't get it from meat, if you do get it from meat, you can get pure retinol. Liver and eggs are excellent sources of that. The plant form is not actually vitamin A. It's a precursor. And you can absolutely make do with that now that we have um, bred certain varieties of plants to ex express the beta carotene very highly. But you should know that conversion rates vary a lot in humans, and some people don't have the ability to convert a lot of vitamin A. Okay. Then we have... Uh, essential fatty acids, and they also are subject to this conversion problem. So DHA and arachidonic acid are really important for the brain because um, most of, so if you take out the water, <laughs> then all, all that's left in the brain is a little bit of protein and a lot of fat and cholesterol. And the fat is largely made up of these polyunsaturated fat, fatty acids, DHA and arachidonic acid in the phospholipids. And so it's so critical that you have those that a lot of the fat in breast milk and the fatty acid dep deposition that infants have on their bodies is full of those nutrients so that can be transported to the brain over time. But the DHA and arachidonic acid are only available in, again, in animal-based foods. Uh, not strictly true. DHA can be made out of algae. And so, again, if you're a vegetarian now, you can make different choices that wouldn't have been available during our evolution. Another thing that I'm really fascinated by, just as a sort of aside in terms of arachidonic acid and DHA, is that a ketogenic diet has is known to actually increase the blood availability of those nutrients and one of the markers of, one of the consistent markers of being on a ketogenic diet is better incorporation of arachidonic acid into phospholipids, period. And I don't know if that comes from resistance to breaking down. It could be. One of the main reasons that arachidonic acid is taken out of phospholipids is to 
is a, as a response to inflammation. Um, but in any case, those that's another important component for the brain. And then I guess the other two mainly are just protein and energy, which are basic needs for any kind of growth. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned just before we jumped onto this call here, something that also was it's very interesting to hear because I also heard it from Dr. Zofia Clemens, who I got to interview about the paleoketogenic diet. And it was about our micronutrient need and the levels that people uh, think they need compared to the RDA. Do you have a, could you sort of just uh, give comment about that, what you, you told me about RDA, low carb and micronutrient needs? Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics uh, because I feel that we have come to a point of returning to the drawing board a lot with RDAs. RDAs were, um, well, they were all the, all the rage at the beginning of the 20th century when, and maybe a bit before that as well, when it was discovered that certain nutrients could be responsible for diseases. Before that, the infection model of disease had really taken off, but it turned out that there were certain kinds of diseases that couldn't be accounted for by an infection. And there were discoveries about nutrients that were essential, that if you took them away, they um, you would end up with a deficiency disease. And so a good examples of that are vitamin A. Um, if you don't get enough vitamin A, you will develop blindness. This is sadly a, a an important problem still in poorer countries. There are children going blind from lack of vitamin A. Um, vitamin D, for example, if you don't get enough of that, you will develop rickets or vitamin B1 gives you beriberi. So there are always these classic examples of deficiency diseases. And based on that, we, we went on this um, the, uh, a quest to figure out what, what the various nutrients, essential nutrients were and exactly how much we would need of them, which is great. But one thing that hasn't been, I think, really appreciated is that all of these nutrient deficiency covering <laughs> um, needs were developed in the context of a high carb diet, usually a high grain diet. And, and there are at least two problems with this, maybe more. One of them is that um, grains and legumes are full of anti-nutrients. One example that Georgia Ede has brought up and that I like to repeat is the absorption of zinc. Um, if you give someone, there, there was a study that showed this, if you give someone oysters, which have a lot of zinc in them, you will see in their bloodstream a short time later a, a large uh, influx of zinc. If you give them the same oysters and you give them a tortilla made of wheat or corn, the amount that shows up in the bloodstream drops almost to the floor because there's so much interference with absorption. So if you think about that in terms of the RDA, if you're looking at your the people uh, that you're studying and you've given them... Um, you know, besides their porridge, you give them enough zinc until they don't need any more. Obviously, that's going to be affected by the fact that they were eating grains. And, and this generalizes such that 
we don't really have a strong understanding of what the RDA or, or what the need is if you didn't have a high carb diet. A second way that it, that this is a problem is that a high carb diet and a ketogenic diet are two very distinct metabolic states. And since a vitamin, as I said earlier, is a coenzyme that's being used to generate metabolic products, it's unclear to me how much you can generalize um, if your metabolic pathways are distinct. So if, if, you're, um, if you're running a lot of glucose metabolism, maybe you're using up a lot more magnesium than you would be if you're running a ketone and fat-based metabolism, and that surely is going to affect what your RDA of magnesium is. The third general problem is that there, there would be um, ethical problems to create certain deficiencies in humans, and so a lot of the work that we have is based on animal models, and animal mo different animals from humans sometimes have different abilities to synthesize or regenerate vitamins that we do. For example, I talked about the conversion of beta-carotene to retinol, and um, it seems likely that different animals have different abilities to do that. There's even individual variation in humans. I mean, just listening to that, Amber, it's, it's so interesting um, just to try to wrap your head around saying, thinking, okay, so the basis of RDAs is based on, as you said, maybe a, a carbohydrate-based diet, which is a glucose-based metabolism versus a ketogenic. And we've just been talking about how humans had an evolutionary route of using more of a ketogenic kind of route for brain health and central nervous system development. Um, and this kind of ties into the question that you always see with the carnivore diet and the all-meat diet about people asking, are they getting enough vitamin C? Vitamin C is always the favorite one. But are they getting enough all these other micronutrients? And is this then, do you think, a way of explaining how people are not going into a deficiency when they're eating a lot of meat-based products, organ-based products, um, that maybe the RDA that people are seeing on their apps isn't sort of isn't needed when someone's eating that way too, because the bioavailability of these micronutrients is better on an organ-based, meat-based kind of diet? Yes, and that reminds me that there's an. <laughs> so some of the RDAs are developed by creating deficiencies. Some of them, like manganese, is a good example of this. Manganese RDA was developed by they they couldn't induce a deficiency, so they just said, "Well, what does everybody normally eat?" And the RDA of manganese is literally based on population norms. But I think you're I think you're absolutely right. Um, once we get into this different context, I think you can't necessarily um, you can't necessarily just transfer the old RDAs, and it it may be inappropriate to worry about getting the amount that is recommended on a high carb diet. Uh, some people have argued to me, um, "Well, shouldn't you just you know be prudent and take a vitamin or eat a source um, just because you know you're better safe than sorry?" Uh, but we also know that there are there can be problems with supplements. There have been 
trials where, uh, for example, I think vitamin E supplementation actually resulted in worse outcomes. And so we don't really know about those kinds of safe levels. Yeah, and it sounds like if you're going to eat oysters, don't eat uh, tortilla crisps with your oysters. Just have them. <laughs> uh, hopefully, you can have it with a bit of Tabasco sauce still. Well, at least if you're going to do that, um, don't do it if you're eating the oysters specifically for the zinc. <laughs> <laughs> if it's just for pleasure, then then everything's fair. <laughs> um, so just trying to tie this back in now. So we've talked about brain development as a child that um, we've got these ketone bodies and the, the brain of, of kids it th sounds like it thrives on it. Um, and then we seem to switch metabolisms a little bit just because of the the food availability in the Western world at the moment that people tend to go more carbohydrate-based when they're adults. But this kind of gets me thinking then, do you think a state of ketosis, nutritional ketosis, is something that maybe from evolutionary that people would have been in a lot of the time, um, both from a, from their childhood even into their adult days? I do think that. Um, I, I find it hard to imagine that they wouldn't have been at least seasonally. Um, so the, the worst, <laughs> kind of worst case scenario that I can imagine in terms of the um, frequency of ketosis would be that we were sometimes in ketosis for long periods in the winter. Now, some people maintain that, um, well, they recognize that we have these two kind of states, the fed state and the fasting state, they're often called. And by the fed state, they actually mean a glucose metabolism state. And people argue that both of these are important for the human body to be at its optimal health because you need you need the the anabolic state to allow things to grow, but you also need the catabolic state to both um, do things like autophagy, where you're tearing down things that are less um, less essential and maybe have. Um, damage in them but also um, just in the same way that when you try to lift things that are a little bit heavier than your muscles can currently support it tell it's a signal to your body to create more muscle there's a similar way in which an energetic deficit can tell your body oh we need to be more efficient at generating energy and this will um, tell your body for example to create more mitochondria or in other cases to create more neurons for example so the these two if you so a lot of people will argue that we have to have this pendulum of fed and fasting and when what they're really thinking of when they say the fed state is the glucose metabolism state i would argue that on a ketogenic diet that's not perpetually in a caloric or protein deficit you reach that a fed state every day um, and rather than having to do this kind of intermittent fasting that you would have to create to if you were eating a high carb diet you can actually just stop eating for that day and before the day is out already be back in that ketogenic state 
So I guess um, the distinction that I'm trying to make is you were asking about the long-term health and the long-term evolutionary plausibility of being in a ketogenic state. And I wanted to say that when I think of the ketogenic state, if you're talking about a maintenance, uh, calorically sufficient, protein sufficient diet, um, you're not in that kind of starvation state that a lot of people think of when they think about long-term chronic ketosis that makes them think this could be really stressful for the body. And rather a, a kind of faster pendulum that is a lot more um, sustainable and so when if you think about it that way, then I think, yes, it's it's absolutely both um, sustainable in the present and plausible in the past. And an action tip that I'm getting from you there is that people who are following a ketogenic diet for the benefits of nutritional ketosis for brain health or whatever other reason, getting enough calories from those sources of food is a, an important part of this. You don't want to be always falling into that negative place it sounds like otherwise um, that might not be an ideal situation yes i i don't think that chronic caloric deprivation is good i know that i know that from a longevity perspective it's been argued for example that that we've seen in um, certain animals that we've studied if we put them in a chronic mild caloric deficit we get longevity, but what you also get is compromise to vitality and concretely compromise to reproductive ability. The same thing, you'll see the same thing happen, and I know we talked about this a little bit last time, in women who have that um, athletic triad where you're constantly creating an energy deficit, maybe you have even a diagnosed eating disorder and your fertility is compromised. And we don't want that and we don't need that to benefit from ketosis the way that those poor other animals do. Mm -hmm. And just coming back to what you mentioned earlier too about getting micronutrients from animal-based fats, how I'm just trying to think to help people imagine what, what what it is that we're talking about. Is it just eating actual fat off a piece of meat or is that you want to be eating organs with fat around them or um, like a ribeye that's really fatty? Like, Do you think you need those other factors around the, the saturated fat to get all these micronutrients? That's a really great question and there are things I don't know about that answer. So one thing that we do know is that the organs, in particular liver and brains and marrow, have a higher concentration depending on what particular nutrient you're looking for um, of, of the nutrients that we need. So for example, liver is an excellent source of vitamin A and muscle meat is not. Um, I have read reports that seem um, legitimate that the tallow and the fat around the muscles is also not a high source of vitamin A. I'm a little bit confused about that because if you look at the biology of vitamin A, um, in humans at least I think about 10 to 20 percent of our vitamin A stores are in the adipose tissue. So there's got to be some in there. doesn't make sense otherwise. But the the part that I don't know the answer to and I think is quite contentious even within the carnivore community 
is whether or not you actually need organs. Um, there can be an argument made that something about the ketogenic diet or something about um, the non-eating of plants allows better um, better recycling of certain vitamins in a way that wouldn't happen if you were on a higher carb diet. And I know that, and I know that in certain cases that's absolutely true. For instance, I've delved into it's not a vitamin, but I've delved into the biology of cortisol and found out that when you're on a low carb diet, clearance goes down so you're wasting it less and uh, regeneration goes up. So you don't actually need as much of the raw material to create cortisol and keep the amount that you need in your body. So it's quite plausible to me that there are many vitamins and minerals um, that you can make better use of even without eating as much of the organs. So th then, but then um, there are other people in the community, Sophia Clemens, for example, in, in her work, she has a strong belief in the necessity of organs for meeting all these needs. And she's uh, not alone and it, it makes sense from a certain point of view i don't think we have all the answers yeah it's so well we're living in a world where we're always trying to find new answers and there's always more questions that prop up so um yeah it's it's a fascinating journey you know getting to speak to yourself and other people who've done a lot of research into this just uh realizing yeah we're, we're in completely new territory it seems like you know we haven't got all these large-scale studies or even some of the basic science seems like it needs to be rewritten at times just to understand certain things. Um, so I'm talking now mainly about older adults and micronutrient needs and brain health. Um, do, you, do you see that benefit that we talked about earlier about fat and, and meat-based products early on in life also being essential for later on in life too for sustaining brain health? Yes, there are definitely um, very similar needs in terms of um, maintenance and um, so ability to keep your brain in good order and also to use it well. They aren't as critical in the same sense as they are during development because if you're lucky, you've already got a fully developed brain to work with and it it's easier to keep it that way and um tolerate more of a deficit i think once it's fully formed um but i it's definitely still been shown that lack of certain nutrients like zinc and iodine for example will compromise your brain function mm -hmm. and i'm just thinking too because as people get older and age they some they sometimes struggle to eat more meat, even though it seems like they need to eat more. When I spoke to Professor Stuart Phillips, he was also talking about the RDA when it comes to protein and that actually as we get older, we need to eat more protein to prevent muscle loss, sarcopenia. So it it does seem to me that, um, yeah, we need to eat more meat um, to get more protein, but also potentially all these other micronutrients that come with it. But yeah, it just... Uh, uh, it seems interesting for me, maybe then, from an evolution point of view, is it that previously we had better teeth, for example, because it seems like older adults suffer to eat enough meat because they have dental problems when they get older nowadays, which is why they can't chew the meat properly. I didn't realize that in particular, although it 
it makes sense. Uh, I think eating carbohydrates throughout your life is going to compromise your teeth faster. But one, uh, well, one thing that maybe you can do to help with that is use tools like cutting to make them more digestible. For example, um, I like steak tartare or ground beef, and I don't really need teeth to cope with that in the same way that I would need to if I had if I was trying to pull the <laughs> pull the meat off a bone, which is pleasurable but not always easy. Yeah, uh, no, it's um. I'm just wondering if that's, you know, this gets me always thinking when I try connect dots and just see different stories like what Western A. Price was doing, you know, and he took all the photos of all those people and just their amazing dental work and structure and everything and just thinking, is that another element to, you know, what what's happening nowadays um, with people's diets too, that um, they need more fortified diets later on in life just because they have because it's actually more of a dental issue later on in life too that's causing an issue that's a really good point and it doesn't have to do with how strong your teeth are or how um, sensitive your nerves are but just are the teeth coming together at the right point in your mouth it has an effect yeah um so I, I've just found today's talk fascinating again. I mean, every time I speak to you, there's just new knowledge bombs and more questions that can crop up from this. And I'm sure listeners listening right now are like, I want to ask Amber this. I want to ask Amber that. Um, so, you know, um, I'm sure I'm going to get lots of questions again in the YouTube channel, on the video for this and um, in other places too. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts then that uh, we might not have addressed when it comes to ketones, micronutrients and uh, brain health? Um, the only thing that we didn't touch on that I was thinking about when I was coming here was um, the notion of nutrient density. The, the concept of nutrient density has been bothering me for a while because the whole way that people measure that is they take nutrients that we need on, on the numerator and divide it on the denominator by energy. So something is more nu nutrient dense if it has more uh, vitamins or minerals in it, and it's less nutrient dense if it has more energy in it. And I think that the motivation for that is people are trying to, they have this idea that you should not be overeating calories. And so you want to find something that has a high amount of nutrition without going over your allotment for calories for the day. And that that certainly makes sense, um, but it's it seems to me that it's in opposition of another term, which you get from primatology, which is and other ecology fields, which is dietary quality. A high quality diet is one in which all of your nutrient needs are met efficiently, including protein needs and energy needs and micronutrient needs. So. You would say that uh, under that kind of measurement, a, a, a plant that is mostly fiber and water, no matter how much micronutrients it has, is going to be low quality because it doesn't give you enough protein and enough energy to meet your needs. You would have to eat a whole lot of it. And in fact, you'd you would get more than enough of your micronutrients, providing you're not interfering with absorption. Um, in order to meet your caloric needs. And so I 
I would propose that instead of chasing nutrient density, we try to find foods that have a, a in one serving of it, you get a proportion of nutrients, protein, and energy such that if you ate your allotment of energy and your allotment of protein, your nutrient needs would be approximately well met. And so it's that kind of natural balance that I think animal-based foods uniquely meet, um, which I think is a better measure of the quality of a food than nutrient density is. Yep, that's uh, that sounds like an interesting concept that people could definitely debate. And um, it, I mean, that, I think that just ties into why people potentially could end up thriving so well on animal-based products because of that quality factor that you're just saying there that maybe they thought they were getting nutrient dense foods before with however way they were eating or supplementation that they were taking but there was some there was another factor that was missing here and this is the quality factor that, that you're addressing now yeah so amber <laughs> i just want to say again thank you so much for sharing all that information today um you've got my mind uh, whizzing again <laughs> and but <laughs> you know the the great takeaway i think i i can get from this again that just adds to the conversation it when people are potentially looking even to go on a carnivore diet or an all meat diet or high, higher animal based product diet is that that bioavailability factor that you were talking about um how maybe the rdas might be different for someone who's eating that way um and that they don't need all that supplementation, which is why people also maybe don't take supplements when they're eating more animal-based products. Um, but also then just how evolutionary we we've, were developed to thrive on ketone bodies. And so, to, so this ties into why maybe like a keto carnivore way of eating is more ideal for someone to develop healthy brains. Thank you. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that's just my little summary. I think I try to tie it all in what Amber said. But uh, it, again, um, Amber, are there any particular resources that um, you would suggest for people to follow you or keep up to date with you? Uh, well, I have my blogs, which I write to intermittently, uh, Empirica uh, with the .ca because I'm a Canadian and ketotic.org. I also am very active, probably a little bit too active for my own good on Twitter. My handle there is Keto Carnivore. And uh, if you're interested in my upcoming work, I will be speaking at Low Carb Houston in a few weeks, the end of October. Great. Well, I'll put all of that in the show notes for people listening. And again, just thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge bombs today. Thank you for having me.